Good evening. Our scriptural reading this evening is from Mark 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and cried out with a loud voice. He said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Disciples Church. Um, my name is Dave Hahn. A special welcome to you if you are visiting with us. We're very, very glad that you are here. Um, I am incredibly glad and incredibly privileged to be able to open God's word with you this evening. So I was thinking about the passage this week, and I began thinking about the idea of, uh, of these kinds of stories. We've been, we've been reading about and hearing parables, and we've been hearing stories that Mark uh, in particular, has told about the life of Jesus. And one of the things that I was thinking about is that what makes a story great is the conflict between good and evil. Stories are no good if there isn't that conflict. And the stories that we love the most are that of rescue, redemption, and self-sacrifice. We have been hardwired at a soul level to love those things by God, our creator, and redeemer who embodies them. He has wired us that way. I remember being a kid and going to Ruby Isle on the corner of North and Calhoun and Brookfield. Who remembers that movie theater and who's been to it? Yeah. So I went with my family to see Raiders of the Lost Ark. Movies there were 79 cents. 
And there's a scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where Indiana Jones, while trying to rescue his girlfriend, Marion, encounters a man dressed in black with a long sword standing about 20 yards away. And in an effort to intimidate Indy, the man begins swinging his sword from side to side. And his swordplay grows fancier and more robust and quicker as he kind of goes. And then the scene cuts to Indy, where we see him look at his opponent. Calmly and resolutely, he pulls a gun out of his belt and fires a single shot, putting an end to the swordsman and any potential threat. Now, what most people don't know about that scene, if you're familiar with it, is that that's not how the scene was written. It was supposed to be, like most things in that movie, this back-and-forth battle between Indy and this guy with the sword. But Harrison Ford, who plays Indiana Jones, was not feeling good and really wanted to get back to his trailer, so he improvised. The scene, if you haven't seen it, is a riot. And I couldn't imagine the scene playing out any other way because it told us, really, all that we needed to know about Indy. In that moment, the audience knew that no matter the threat, he was ultimately going to win. And we as the audience just get to sit back and watch it happen. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, in both word and deed, Jesus declares and demonstrates that the kingdom of God is at hand. And whatever evil stands before him, no matter how strong or intimidating, Jesus calmly and firmly exercises his kingly power and authority over it while rescuing and healing those he loves. The story that Phil read for us in Mark 5 is also told in the book of Luke chapter 8, if you want to look at it there, which makes sense. It would make sense that it's in both of these gospels because both Luke and Mark heard and recorded this event from the perspective of the same eyewitness. Simon Peter. They weren't there to witness it themselves, but they heard it through the view of Simon Peter. And so as Jesus and his disciples, including Simon Peter, came to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they were immediately met by a man possessed with demons. And to make it all the more creepy, this likely all occurred at night, or at least the very early morning. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has had an encounter like this. Mark chapter 1 tells us that Jesus routinely encountered and healed those possessed by demons or unclean spirits. But we get a more detailed picture of what it looked like for someone to be possessed by a demon in this story. In Luke 8, we learn that this man had been possessed a long time, and he wore no clothes. Verses 2 and 3 of Mark 5, our passage today, tells us that this man lived in a graveyard among the tombs, among the dead. Now, as you read tombs or graveyard, don't picture Wisconsin Memorial Park. This is not a beautifully landscaped graveyard with nice, clean tombs. Graveyards at this time would have been on the outskirts of town inside caves, and it was inside those caves that bodies were laid. In this time, and certainly in our time today, you don't generally find people living among tombs. But the Jews had specific laws 
against being among the dead as it made them ceremonially unclean. And very likely, this man did not live among the tombs by his own choosing. Rather, he would have been driven there, either by force or through rejection of everybody else in the village. Continuing in verses 3 and 4, we learn that this demon-possessed man was supernaturally strong and needed to be bound with shackles and chains, but not even they could restrain him. He tore the chains apart, and he broke the shackles. And finally, in verse 5, we find this man crying out night and day and cutting himself with sharp stones. Now, these first five verses paint quite a frightening picture. And this man's behavior sounds extreme, and it is certainly scary. But so that we don't disassociate ourselves from this incredible story, I think it is important to point out that we still have people like this living among us today. People with voices in their head, prone to violence and destruction, people who hurt themselves and in some cases are desperate to leave this life. Maybe someone in this room or within the sound of my voice is struggling in a similar way. And because our culture is less likely to explain things like this through the supernatural, we are quick to label people with a mental illness of some kind. And rather than driving them into graveyards for their protection in ours, we use hospitals and padded rooms. Now, hear me in this. It is certainly possible that mental illness is a reason for this kind of behavior maybe even likely. After all, the brain is part of our physical body. It would make sense that things would go wrong there. But what if mental illness isn't the only reason for these behaviors in every case? What if mental illness isn't the only reason for these behaviors in every case? Personally, My ears always perk up whenever I hear a story about someone who has committed an awful crime. More specifically, they have little to no recollection of doing it. Or they claim that they heard voices telling them to do what it is that they have done. Now, of course, apart from knowing that individual personally, there's no way to know what really happened, but what if they're telling the truth? What if the reason some people do bizarre, awful, and destructive things to themselves and others is that they are under the control of a demonic, spiritual being? Just like the man in Mark 5. The Word of God, my friends, tells us that we are in the middle of a spiritual war. A war for the souls of mankind. So, while it is clear that I have no medical or clinical training, it is clear, right? (laughs) I have been given God's word. We have been given God's word and his spirit, which reveals to us what would otherwise be hidden. 
including the presence and the power of spiritual beings. As such, I can't help but wonder if we are doing a disservice to many of those who we label mentally ill when we ignore the spiritual and the supernatural. To be sure, absolutely certain, counseling and medicine are gifts from God. Doctors and hospitals are gifts from God. And while those things can help subdue us, cause us to think more rightly, and in some cases treat the source of the problem, only Jesus Christ can fully renew and restore us. Only Jesus Christ can fully renew and restore us. See, for years, the villagers of the Gerasenes tried to subdue and tame this demon-possessed man, but to no avail. But then, Jesus. But then, Jesus. Ultimately, as we just read, it was Christ who set this man free and made him whole. And this idea got me thinking about those things which afflict us. The things that bind you and me and the people we know and love. Things that we ultimately need to be set free from. Maybe it is spiritual oppression. Maybe it is a physical or a mental illness. Or maybe it's an addiction of some kind. Not just narcotics. Maybe it's a lifelong struggle with a certain sin. And for many of us, it's moralism. Moralism. Living as though being a good person is what saves you and causes God to love you. And even though the Bible tells us that only God is good and that we can never be good enough to earn God's favor on our own, moralism enslaves a large majority of our population Christians included. Keeping them from the joy of the gospel and denying them the freedom that Christ died to give them through faith in him. Friends, whatever it is that afflicts or enslaves us, we have to answer this question. How do you and I respond when we find ourselves enslaved and confronted by things that we can't control? How do we respond when we find ourselves enslaved and confronted by things that we just can't control in our lives or in the lives of others? Like the people of the Gerasenes, do we seek to tame and subdue those things through our own efforts with the broken chains and shackles of our failures sitting at our feet? Or do we look heavenward outside of ourselves, realizing that we do not possess the power to change what most afflicts us, much less the afflictions of others. Do we believe that we are completely and utterly dependent upon the one who can and does have the power to free us? 
that Jesus Christ alone can make us new and whole at a heart, mind, and soul level? Friends, hear me on this. The word of God assures us that Jesus stands on the shore of your life and my life, eager to do for us what he did for the man that we read about in Mark 5. So listen to verses 6 through 8 of Mark 5. Verse 6, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now this section doesn't necessarily follow a successive order as far as the way that it plays itself out. It jumps around a little bit. So verses 6 through 20 tells us how the encounter between Jesus and the demon-possessed man played out, but it's in verse 2 that we learn of the incredible urgency with which this man approached Jesus. This man was desperate. Remember that in Luke 8 it said that he had been possessed a long time. He was desperate. He had tried everything. The villagers had tried everything. Verse 2 of Mark 5, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Imagine ever walking to the door on a day home from work and your kids or your wife are right there. It's that kind of a thing. There's urgency in what it is that they have to say. You see, this is what a person does when they truly see Jesus for who he is. If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ yet, it is possible that you just don't understand who he is. That he's not just a good man or a great teacher or just one of many religious leaders. Rather, he is Jesus Son of the Most High God, Lord over all that is seen and unseen, full of love, mercy, grace, and power. And when you begin to see him this way, you just might run to him in desperation too. Jumping ahead to verse 8, Jesus replied, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then in verse 7, in response to Jesus, the man cried, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now almost certainly, the demons who possessed this man fell before Jesus in a false act of worship. While at the same time, understanding very well who Jesus was and the great power that he possessed. And both of these points are important to understand. It was a false display of worship, though they knew who he was. Do you realize, my friends, that it is possible to know all the facts about Jesus and not truly know him? It's true of every demon in hell. It's true of many professors of religion, history scholars, and people of other faiths. And it's also true of church attenders, pastors, and self-proclaimed Christians. Friends, a person can know a lot about Christ and pretend to worship him while at the same time have a heart that has no intention on worshiping 
and is very, very far from him. You can know a lot about him. You could pretend to worship him. And your heart can be very far from him. That's terrifying. Listen to what James, Jesus' half-brother, wrote to the church of Jerusalem. He wrote, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder, quake, their knees knock. Can you sense the heart of what James is getting at here? You believe that God is one. Big deal. Big deal. James is not real impressed with those who believe that there is a God. And just to state the obvious, God isn't impressed either. God has deliberately and explicitly made himself known so we don't get much credit for believing that he exists or for being wise enough to recognize that there's a spiritual aspect to this life. As the second half of this verse points out, even the demons got that far. Have you ever thought of that? You see, what God is after are worshipers and followers and disciples who love and trust him. It's interesting to consider that Jesus' own disciples didn't really understand who he was. If you look at the back end of chapter 4, they literally ask those questions, and we're talking about hours from reading this. These guys didn't know who he was. But the demons, as we read in verse 5, they knew full well. So being a Christian isn't just about head knowledge, is it? Because the demons had that. Rather, being a Christian is about having a heart that is willing to worship, surrender, and trust in him. And the disciples did that. While Satan and his demons refused to. To this day. So let me press pause a little bit. Let's do a parenthesis, if you will, and deconstruct the first of two common myths about Satan and his demons. And we're going to deconstruct them by correcting them with what biblical truth is. These are the words of God. Here's the first truth. Satan and his demons cannot possess or take control of a Christian. Satan and his demons cannot possess or take control of a Christian. Listen to Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's who we are apart from Christ, but listen to what God did for us. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That is Satan and his demons. That's not kings and governors. 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Friends, as Christians, we are permanently indwelled by the spirit of the living God. And the no vacancy sign is shining brightly for the demonic world to see. According to the verses we just read, in and through Christ's death and resurrection, Satan has been disarmed, his teeth have been pulled, and he has been put to shame, having been triumphed over. Yes, there is still evil in the world, but God is in control. And the full and final defeat of Satan and his demons is coming. But until that day, greater is the one who is in you, that's Jesus, than he who is in the world, that's Satan and their demons. So fear not and be encouraged. Moving on to verse 9. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. So by giving the name Legion, we see this man's demons trying in vain to intimidate Jesus. All dressed in black, swinging their swords wildly. Because the name Legion is in reference to the size of a particular group of soldiers, about 6,000 men. And whether this man had 6,000 demons in him or not, Jesus was not worried. But the demons were. The demons were. Because in verse 10, we see the true posture of Satan and his demons when confronted with the power of God. Do you read it? They beg and they plead When confronted with the power of God, Satan and his demons beg and plead. I love what Charles Spurgeon had to say about this verse. He said, the devil can pray, and he did so in this case. It is not because a man is fluent in prayer that we can be sure of his salvation. It is not because a man prays with such fervor that his knees knock together that we may conclude that he is a saint. It may be that he is trembling through fear of God's judgment. Satan begged Christ often. Satan begged Christ often. Brothers and sisters, just as one can know about Jesus without a heart of worship, one can pray to Jesus with that same rebellious heart. Not everyone who believes God exists and prays to him are worshipers of him. Not everyone who believes that he exists and prays to him are worshipers of him. So don't be counted among the demons who, like many professing Christians, know about him and pray to him but have no intention of worshiping him. Rather, be counted among those who know and love God as their Father and who gladly bend their knee in worship. Verse 11, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. 
There is a sentence in these verses that could easily be missed, but I think it's the most important one. We find it at the beginning of verse 13. So he gave them permission. So he, that's Jesus, gave them, that's the demons, permission. A legion of demons refusing to worship God and set on destruction had to beg Jesus not to be destroyed. And they had to ask him for permission to go elsewhere. Do you realize the implications of that sentence? Is that four words? And he gave them permission. Five words. It really, those five words really get to one of the main points of these 20 verses. And it highlights the second biblical truth we need to know about Satan and his demons. It's this. Satan and his demons need permission from God to do the things that they do because God has authority over them. Satan and his demons need permission from God to do the things that they do because God has authority over them. Read Job chapter 1. Read Mark chapter 1, where we were months ago, the beginning of the year. Read Luke 22 this week. And when you do, note the posture of the enemy. Friends, if you are in Christ, hear me on this. If you are in Christ, your enemy may be a ravenous, roaring lion looking to devour you, but he is on a very short leash with God's hand firmly holding the other end. Satan and his demons are toothless, disarmed, and defeated fallen angels. Those scary to us. And they have to beg God to mess with us. Can somebody say amen about that? You know what I mean? Do you know how different the storms of life would look if we truly believed that God allowed them for our good and we're all within his control? Do you realize how different the attacks of the enemy or even the threat of it would look if we truly believed that God allowed them for our sanctification and held the enemy on a tight leash? I mean, do you believe that God is good and in control of all the things that frighten and threaten you? Because life looks pretty different for those who do. Friends, we need to be careful with how we understand and talk about Satan and his demons. Generally speaking, people tend to over or underestimate them. In the eyes of some, Satan is behind everything even lost keys. (laughs) And in the eyes of others, he's a non-factor. But neither of those are true. And both are dangerous to believe. Yes, Satan and his demons can provoke and disrupt and tempt and intimidate, but for the Christian, his power ends there. 
And even the power that he has is God-given. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. You'd think that the villagers would have rejoiced. (laughs) You'd think that the villagers would have praised God. Nope. Just fear. Just fear. The villagers were afraid to see this man sitting clothed and in his right mind, and they begged Jesus to leave. Isn't it odd that the villagers would be more afraid of a man freed from demons than one who was possessed by them? Isn't it odd that the villagers would feel more threatened by one who has authority over demons than the demons themselves? I mean, why would they react this way? I think it is because they had encountered God in a way they never had before. And there are implications that come along with encountering God. There are implications that come along with encountering him. See, when a person encounters Jesus, there are only two reactions. Worship or walk away. You either worship or you walk away. Friends, seeing Jesus as God takes you off the throne of your life and demands that everything be different. Because if he's God, then you're no, if he's God, you're no longer in control because he is. If he's God, your life no longer belongs to you, it belongs to him. Now, of course, Those things are always true of God. Nothing threatens his lordship, but in becoming aware of who he is, you will either surrender in worship or walk away in unbelief and rejection. And in these verses, we see both. The villagers rejected Jesus and asked him to leave, while the formerly demon-possessed man worshiped and wanted to follow. Verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. It doesn't always make sense to us when we see Jesus tell someone to be quiet about what he's done, does it? or about who he is. Why would he want them to be quiet? It can be confusing when he tells someone like this man to stay home. I mean, wouldn't he want more followers? I mean, that's certainly what this man wanted to do. I think the reason that these kinds of things can be confusing to us is somewhat simple. 
We don't think like God thinks. And we don't know what God knows. Jesus knew two things that this formerly demon-possessed man did not. First, the testimony he would share among his family, friends, and other Gentiles in this region would bring God far greater glory than getting in the boat with him would. And his telling others, we come to find out, would lead them to know Jesus for themselves. And we talked at length a couple weeks ago about the power of personal testimony, and we see it perfectly demonstrated in the life of this man as well as the life of the Samaritan woman in John 4. Because friends, no argument, debate, book, or sermon has the power of your personal testimony of God's love, saving grace, and mercy in your life. It is the story of who you used to be and what God did for you and who you are now that God uses And no one can argue with it. No one can argue with it. Rather, they can find hope in it and believe that God might just as well do the same thing for them. The second thing that Jesus knew was that this man was likely afraid of being possessed by demons again. Makes sense. I would be. And like the disciples, this man believed that proximity to Jesus would assure his safety. I'm going to stay close to him. So listen to what Charles Spurgeon had to say about this passage. He said, Christ took fear from the demoniac and as good as says to him, you do not need to be near me. I have so healed that you will never be sick again. He has so healed that he'll never be sick again. Not that way. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came to the other side of the Sea of Galilee through a storm for one person. There is no one he will not pursue. There is no one who is so bad that he won't go after them. This man was naked, without hope, living in a tomb and imprisoned by evil spirits and in desperate need of who Jesus was and what it is that he could do. And that is exactly who we were when Christ found you and I. You were no better off. I was no better off, spiritually speaking, than this man. And if you don't know Christ today, that's who you are now. That's where you are now. Whether you realize it or not. Slaves to sin, bound by Satan and sin, and spiritually dead. That's the life of a non believer. But then, Jesus. But then, Jesus. 2,000 years ago, Jesus crossed the expanse of heaven 
and he came to earth for you and for me. He was driven out by those who feared and rejected him. He was stripped naked and hung on a cross. Crying out and bleeding from the scourges of Roman whips, thorns on his head, nails in his hands and feet, and the rejection of everyone who loved and followed him. And he absorbed every bitter thought and every evil deed we have ever or will ever commit. And dying a criminal's death, he went into a tomb. But rising again three days later, he defeated our greatest enemies, sin, death, and hell, once and for all. Disarming them of the swords they had been swinging and threatening us with. And now, by grace and through faith, he offers us full forgiveness, past, present, and future. And he offers us a renewed, restored, and resurrected life. His life. Friends, it's God himself that we get. He is our prize. He is our goal. So, will you bow down in worship today? Or will you ask him to leave and walk away. There's literally no more important decision. Friends, be encouraged. Whatever binds you today, whatever enslaves you today, Jesus has the authority, the power, and listen, the desire to set you free. So receive him by faith and come to him in worship, then go and tell others what he's done for you and of his great mercy. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today grateful that you are sovereign, grateful that you have all power and authority and grateful that you desire to free us from all that enslaves us, even those things that we choose instead of you. Father, would you give us eyes to see what those things are, to not see them as more beautiful than you and to admit that we have no power of our own to set ourselves free from them. Father, you who are invisible have made yourself known by that which is visible. May we not be counted among the demons who know well who you are but refuse to worship. Rather, having seen you by what you have made and what you have done in Christ, may our hearts be made new and may we surrender to his lordship. You, God, have declared and demonstrated that your kingdom is near and that one day all opposition to it will be crushed. Remind us that by your spirit we have been sent as priests, ambassadors, and ministers of your kingdom to a lost and darkened world. Help us to declare the goodness of God and tell of his great mercy toward us that the chains and shackles of sin, death, and all that enslaves might be broken. 
lives would be restored and all would be made new in your son. In whose name we pray, amen.